Welcome to the Aspen Chapel podcast with Nicholas and Heather Vesey. Also from the Sanskrit, from the Upanishads, the Hindu scripture. Like two birds of golden plumage, inseparable companions, the individual self and the immortal self are perched on the branches of the self-same tree. The former tastes the sweet and bitter fruits of the tree, the latter tasting of neither calmly observes. The individual self, deluded by forgetfulness of his identity with the divine self, bewildered by his ego, grieves and is sad. But when he recognizes the worshipful Lord as his own true self, and beholds his glory, he grieves no more. Seeing him present in all, the wise man is humbled, puts not himself forward. His delight is in the self. His joy is in the self. He serves the Lord in all. Now, last week, I spoke about the idea of recognising that in our life, we're given our own particular consciousness and then a set of circumstances that we have to navigate and that our purpose in that life is to use that unified, integrated experience to contribute to the evolution of consciousness through bringing as much wisdom and love to bear on the situations that come to us. Someone wrote to me after that uh, service and said for them, it really meant standing still in our own essence. And I think that really sums it up, you know, even better than I, I could have done. Standing still in our own essence. We have to stand in our essence and allow the divine within us to speak through us in whatever circumstances, given our own consciousness and given the circumstances of our lives. There's an integrity in that. Integrity from the French integer meaning intact, to express our own unique consciousness in our own unique way is to express our intactness, to remain intact. But I think that begs the bigger question, how do we keep that integrity, that intactness of being, when we're continually dealing with others in our life? Unity is one of the words of the moment. People feel that the country needs unity. We need unity in our community here in the valley. And even in the chapel, we're looking to create unity as we go forward. And yet unity often proves elusive. How do we reconcile one side with another? How do we heal hurts that have been experienced in the past? How do we reconcile different views? How does blame and retribution fit in? What about justice and consequences for actions that have been perpetrated? It's, it's a mess trying to sort it all out. And yet, for there to be progress, for us to move forward in our evolution, we have to try and find an integrity within all of that. 
something that enables us to emerge together, intact, whole, not fractured. Thomas Merton, whose birthday it was last week, has some insight into the political side of this. He says, In our refusal to accept the partially good intentions of others and to work with them, of course prudently and with resignation to the inevitable imperfection of the result of that, we're unconsciously proclaiming our own malice, our own intolerance, our own lack of realism, our own ethical and political quackery in refusing to accept the partially good intentions of others. Perhaps in the end, the first real step towards peace would be a realistic acceptance of the fact that our political ideas, and perhaps to a great extent, illusions and fictions to which we cling to. Our political ideas are in fact illusions and fictions that we cling to out of motives that are not always perfectly honest. And that because of this, we prevent ourselves from seeing any good or any practicality in the political ideas of our enemies which may, of course, be in ways even more illusory and dishonest than our own. We'll never get anywhere unless we accept the fact that politics is an inextricable tangle of good and evil motives in which perhaps the evil predominate, but where one must continue to hope doggedly in what little good can still be found. But someone will say, if we once recognise that we are all equally wrong, all political action will instantly be paralysed. We can only act when we assume that we're right. On the contrary, says Merton, I believe the basis for valid political action can only be the recognition that the true solution to our problems is not accessible to any one isolated political party or nation, but that we must all arrive at it by working together. But but how do we work together? How can we come together with an integrity? And of course, Merton does provide an answer for this. He says... It would be sentimental folly to expect them, political adversaries, to trust one another when they obviously cannot be trusted. But at least they can learn to trust God. If you can love the men you cannot trust, if you can love the men you cannot trust without trusting them foolishly, and if we can to some extent share the burden by identifying ourselves with them, then perhaps there is some hope of a kind of peace on earth based not on the wisdom and manipulation of men, but on the inscrutable mercy of God. Merton is saying that the work of unity is not an external work. It's an internal work. It involves standing still in our own essence, 
and creating a unity within ourselves before we try and create a unity with others. That's what it means to learn to trust in God. That's really code for having integrity within ourselves that allows us to approach others from a point not of rightness, but a point of intactness. Not rightness, but intactness. We come forward having worked on being intact ourselves, of seeing our own motives that are not always perfectly honest, and open to loving both the moving impetus of the divine within us and in loving the other that we're trying to be in unity with. Loving both the impetus of the divine within us and loving the other that we're trying to be in unity with. Rilke says, if this is arrogant, God forgive me, but this is what I need to say. May what I do flow from me like a river, no forcing, no holding back, the way it is with children. We have to be willing to communicate like that, vulnerable, open, willing to be wrong, and in love both with the divine within us and the person with which we're communicating. All of which does seem a tall order, but it's not. It's the work that we're here to do. And in that reading from the Upanishads, it puts us in exactly the right place to do it. Two birds of golden plumage, inseparable companions, the individual self and the immortal self, both perched on the branches of the self-same tree. The former tastes the bitter fruits of the tree, the latter tasting neither and calmly observing. The individual self, deluded by forgetfulness of his identity with the divine self, bewildered by his ego, grieves and is sad. But when he recognizes the worshipful Lord as his true self and beholds his glory, he grieves no more. We have to recognize both the individual self that tastes the sweet and bitter fruits of life and the true self that beholds glory. Only then does the integrity within become possible. The individual self, the rational mind in all its forms, grieves and is sad. But when it recognizes the true self, the divine within, he grieves no more. The integrity does not come from trying to eradicate the individual self and become the true self because, of course, that's impossible. You cannot stop the mind. The integrity comes in the realization that you are the tree that contains both the individual self and the divine self, both these birds. We have both the individual self and the divine self within us, and both are within the tree. We do not have to rid ourselves of one and become the other. We have to see both as within us. So our integrity comes from recognizing the motives that are not always perfectly honest. 
those motives within us, as well as seeing it and recognizing it in others, at the same time as seeing the divine self as both in ourselves and in others. Seeing him present in all, the wise man is humble and puts not himself forward. His delight is in the self. His joy is in the self. He serves the Lord in all. So this unity has to be achieved within ourselves before it can be achieved in conjunction with others, as it has to in all circumstances if there's going to be peace. We have to be the change that we want to see in the world. We have to create the unity and integrity within ourselves before we can even begin to create unity and integrity in others. Merton goes on to say, when I consent to the will and mercy of the divine as it comes to me in the events of life, appealing to my inner self, I break through the superficial exterior appearances that form my routine vision of the world and my own self, the individual self from the Upanishads, and I find myself in the presence of hidden majesty. When I consent to the will and mercy of the divine as it comes to me in the events of my life, I break through. That hidden majesty is the integrity and intactness of our true relationship with the world that is unseen by us when we look through the eyes of the individual self. When we achieve integrity within, then we're able to see the integrity all around us, that we are all one with the world, that unity just exists and does not have to be created. That as the Tao Te Ching says, our enemy is but the shadow that we ourselves cast. So unity is not something that has to be created. It has to be realized. Literally, it has to be made real. Our work to create unity is really the work of getting ourselves and our motives that are not always perfectly honest out of the way so that we can see the hidden majesty of the unity that exists all around us. Now, I hear you say that's all very well, but we have to be practical. There are things that, we, that are need to be done, things that need to be said, and those are not always conducive to the supposed hidden majesty that exists within us and around us. However, to be completely practical, the development of this inner integrity, the realization of the tree that includes both birds, is exactly the practical work that goes on in creating this unity. And all it takes is the intellectual ascent of the mind, the intellectual ascent of the individual self to the beginning of the process to happen, the realization that it all exists in one. Look at your own life, where there is conflict, 
and where you want to create unity. You have to assent to both your own motives that are not always perfectly honest alongside the hidden majesty that lies all around us. And once you do that, admit to both, then you're halfway there. The key to unity is in our own hands, if we could but see it. The question is not one of compromise, but of surrendering to that hidden majesty. And once you do that, you become part of it. The trouble is that for most of the time, we simply don't choose to believe it. The individual self, the one bird in the tree, steadfastly refuses to believe that any of this nonsense has any meaning. That it's impractical, that it cannot work as it continues to taste the sweet and bitter fruits of the tree. Deluded by forgetfulness of his identity with the divine self, bewildered by his ego, he grieves and is sad. There is a willfulness about our individual self that hears but doesn't listen, that sees but does not appreciate. As it says in Mark 12, the mystery of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside may be ever seeing and never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. We all do that because we prefer to live in a world that we think we can control as the individual self, that we can create justice, that we can make things right, rather than surrender to the divine self and the hidden majesty, because we cannot know the outcome. As Jesus says, for everyone who asks will receive. He who seeks will find. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you in his son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? We can't expect the world to adopt this way of working necessarily. We can't expect to see it in Congress or even in our local council quite yet. But we can put it into practice in our own lives. We can prioritize standing still in our own essence so as to create an integrity, an intactness of being within us, recognizing that our motives are not always perfectly honest. And by seeing ourselves as the tree that contains both the individual self and the divine self, we can begin to glimpse the hidden majesty that's all around us and realize the unity in our own life that doesn't have to be created, but is just already there. The hidden majesty is that unity. And when we glimpse it, we experience the unity within ourselves as serenity. As the Tao Te Ching says, Empty your mind of all thoughts. Let your heart be at peace. Watch the turmoil of beings, but contemplate their return. Each separate being in the universe returns to the common source. Returning to the source is serenity.
If you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king, immersed in the wonder of the Tao. You can deal with whatever life brings you. And when death comes, you're ready. That's the state we aspire to be in, to realize that unity all around us. It is available and accessible. We just have to be it. Like two birds of golden plumage, inseparable companions, the individual self and the immortal self are perched on the branches of the self-same tree. The former tastes the bitter and sweet fruits of the tree, the latter, tasting neither, calmly observes. The individual self, deluded by forgetfulness of his identity with the divine self, bewildered by his ego, grieves and is sad. But when he recognizes the worshipful Lord as his own true self and beholds his glory, he grieves no more. Seeing him present in all, the wise man is humble and puts not himself forward. His delight is in the self. His joy is in the self. He serves the Lord in all. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, do you know, I think the thing, interesting thing about the whole unity thing is that, that it is an inner work. You know, it's, it's not necessarily, we always think, you know, let's all get everyone together, in a, you know, in a room. And so, it's an inner work, primarily. And it's only when the inner work has been done that the outer work can really come about. Yeah, I just, I just feel like there's so much in what you said today. And it, it's, it's so amazing and so important. And yeah, just that, that idea that really, in a way, unity is, in that sense, then the byproduct of of our own inner work. Like if we're, if we're doing that, um, it will result in unity. Yeah. And so, like we've been saying in recent weeks, um, I think, you know, the, the, what we're asked to do then is to bring compassionately all the disparate parts of ourselves, all the contradictions in ourselves, and, and have them just be in our, just to, for us to know and learn how to hold them out of, the, out of our anchoredness in our hearts, that we can be so rooted and, and hold seeming contradictions and it, and it be okay. And, and just for us to realize, re, I like that word realize yeah. rather than create, you know, it's, it's already there, like it's our deepest nature, isn't it? Yeah. Unity. Yeah. And, um, and so just to live into that and have it, come out of our own inner work. And, and two things uh, as well with that, that, the idea of, you know, of being aware of our own motives, that not all our motives <laughs> are absolutely necessarily honest, you know, we have to, to see the motives within us because we do that. That's the one thing that's important. And just to be slightly suspicious of our motives. But also, I think, not to be too impatient with it all. You know, we think, well, okay, you know, I'll do that and then unity will come straight away. It doesn't happen like that. You know, the old phrase that, you know, it'll be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. And the fact is that these things take 
you know, millennia to work out in general. I mean, we, were, we will not have full unity until the second coming, until the total realisation. Yeah. I mean, we're never really going to get there. We're all a work in progress, yeah. aren't we? And we're yeah. all fallible. And yeah. but the more we can be compassionate with ourselves, then we can, only then can we remotely be compassionate with anyone else. Yes. <laughs> like, it has to start with us. Um, one, one thing I, I read, interestingly, this morning that totally goes with what you were saying yeah. was... Um, uh, Thomas Merton, who you quoted a bunch, um, reflecting on Gandhi's nonviolence, like on, on that level, uh, he said, like, nonviolence was not simply a political tactic which was supremely useful and efficacious in liberating his people from foreign rule. The spirit of nonviolence sprang from an inner realization of spiritual unity in himself. The whole Gandhian concept of nonviolent action is incomprehensible if it is thought to be a means of achieving unity, rather than as the fruit of inner unity already achieved, Gandhi had already achieved something of inner unity, yeah. and it was that that he brought, out, brought, you know, and made efficacious, <laughs> you know. Just think that's interesting. So our focus has to be on that, not necessarily on the unity, and it will be, it'll come out of that. It'll come out of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's just interesting as well. Um, like our mind tricks us. Um, we can't really trust our minds, but we can trust our hearts. There's nothing deceitful in our, about the quality of our hearts. And so I think we need to be really uh, grounded and anchored in this kind of effervescence of our heart, which really, this is what I've been thinking about this week, is that our hearts are kind of interrealmic. They, they, they are of another dimension. Yeah. And... Um, I think, you know, our, our practices, like whatever spiritual practices we do, need to be always bringing our mind, which can be so divisive and analytical and all of that, and just come down into our heart, which is the seat of being able to perceive reality accurately. Yeah. Like, the more we're in our heart, the more we can see clearly. That's what, yeah. you know? And it's not always easy to do that. You know, we all have our own ways of arriving at that. I, I'm going to finish this, uh, saw this poem this week, uh, The Peace of the Wild Things by Wendell Berry. And this is just, you know, his description of, of how he goes about that. He says, when despair grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and what my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of the wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting for their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world, and am free. Mm, I love that. Thanks for listening. If you feel moved to make a donation to the chapel, please go to aspenchapel.org. Thank you, and if you'd like to receive these podcasts regularly, subscribe to the Aspen Chapel through Apple, Google Play, YouTube, or any other outlet.